Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the place to discover more about emerging tech in offshore renewables, how we will meet our future energy needs. My name is Alex Loudon, Senior Technology Acceleration Manager at the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult, the UK's leading research and innovation centre for offshore renewables. We connect agile technology developers, academics and industry players working to accelerate the UK's wind, wave and tidal energy sectors. The development of robotics technology is seen as vital for the offshore wind sector, which, according to ORE Catapult Research, could cut its inspection costs by almost 40% through integrating remote operations, robotics and automated systems into the operations and maintenance activities of wind farms. But how will these crawling, flying, swimming and inspecting robot solutions change the landscape of the offshore wind sector over the coming decades? Well, let's meet today's guests to help us dissect the role of robotics within renewable energy. Hi, my name is Simon Watson. I'm a senior lecturer in robotic systems at the University of Manchester. My research interest is in the area of inspection, maintenance and repair robots for hazardous and extreme environments, predominantly nuclear decommissioning, but I also do work in offshore renewables and in the mining sector as well. Hi there, I'm Brody. I'm an engineer at Bladebug, and we're developing a robotics platform for inspection and maintenance of offshore wind turbines. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Theo Lim here. I'm an associate professor at Heriwatt University. My kind of research area is more into the digital twins aspect and the usage of micro-robotics. My research and, you know, of particular interest here is in the offshore renewable energy. So a terrific range of uh, expertise and viewpoints, hopefully, to tackle some really interesting questions in, in the podcast today. In this month's podcast, we're going to try something just a little bit different. We've compiled some common myths and misconceptions within robotics and offshore wind, and we're going to ask our guests to try and debunk these myths in under a minute. So the first myth that we're looking to tackle is that robotic solutions will replace the human workforce and reduce employment in the sector. Which of our guests would like to take that on first? So I would say that this is perhaps um, a psychological aspect as well as a society aspects towards automation. Within this, I would always see it as how someone would accept robotics within their workplace. And so then it becomes a problem of how do you work? How do humans actually work collaboratively with robots? And this is something that, of course, at the Orca Hub, it's something that we do. We look at how human-robot collaboration happens together and understanding this through perhaps say maybe a framework of trustworthiness, which is something the UKRI has in their trustworthy autonomous systems program. Uh, this will perhaps help us better understand how humans can actually work with robots rather than saying, you know, robots are going to replace the human person. At the end of the day, there will always be people because robots cannot replace the human mind. I guess there it's, it's almost just about understanding what robots are capable of and how we can work with them. Exactly. Brilliant. So the second myth we're looking at is that robotics and offshore renewable maintenance is, is more expensive than current methods. I, I don't know, Simon, are you able to, to kind of debunk this one? I was part of a, a project called Home Offshore, which was looking at how we could reduce the costs of offshore O&M. And one of the uh, elements that was done as part of this project was to look at the economic analysis are robots cost effective? There's a really good um, publication that came out of this that showed actually if you use robots, you can reduce your costs by up to 70%. 
and it could decrease revenue lost by inspections by up to 90%. Uh, and this could be expanded out. And this was only looking at the use of drones, human operated drones or fully autonomous drones. There's a little bit of uh, care around that as to, to how much cost reduction you have. But just by using those robotic platforms, it really reduced the costs of the O&M. So if you expand that to the, the future uh, large scale wind farms, it makes them economically viable. I think that's really highlighted that even just with one kind of quite specific form of robotics, we, we can see some quite significant cost reductions. So that's really interesting. Thank you, Simon. And Brody, perhaps if I can come to you for the last myth that we want to bust today, and that's that robotic solutions are more likely to fail and cause damage to the environment around them rather than kind of inspect, maintain and repair like they're supposed to. I think you can uh, look at other industries that have really successfully deployed robotics, such as oil and gas. And you can see now that they're actually used instead in areas where there are actually much higher risks of, of failure, where injury to human life is much more likely. And often these uh, systems are actually held to much higher standards than a technician might be, along with better capabilities to, to log throughout these activities to track whether they are being successful and uh, byproducts of activities are being properly accounted for, I think you can see that robotics can actually be more likely to more successfully achieve tasks and to have better um, data on the success of those tasks. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Brody. And I think one of the really good examples of robots being held to higher accounts is if we look over an automotive at driverless cars and the standards that they're held to where you know, human drivers make mistakes all the time. I don't think I've ever done a journey through Glasgow and, and not been uh, tutored at by someone around about me or, or vice versa. So yeah, really good point. I'd like to move the discussion on to how robotics are going to play a role in our transition to a net zero economy. Clearly, this is one of the, the biggest drivers facing not only the deployment of offshore wind, but, but across the whole economy this push towards having a net zero impact on greenhouse gas emissions. Just to start off at quite a high level, why are robotics essential for operating and maintaining offshore wind farms? I could start again here. I think it's about distance. If we consider current wind turbines on land, getting to the wind turbines on land, it's fairly straightforward. I mean, that's because they're off-road vehicles and all these, but there's a good road network. As we move towards the offshore wind, we are faced with more hazardous environmental conditions. Even, say, 100 kilometers offshore, you will get some waves that are easily 15 feet high. When you get further offshore, well, unfortunately, those waves get higher, which means that as you transport people across these sorts of distance, not only face a hazardous part of it, but then the transportation is really expensive as well. I mean, everybody knows that the carbon footprint of a tanker that travels across different oceans, it's enormous, it's huge. So to serve as one of these offshore farms, it does take a lot of uh, energy and certainly your carbon footprint will be rather high. Yeah, and I suppose the kind of typical adage for robotics is that they're really good at dull, dirty, dangerous, disparate tasks where it's really difficult or expensive to get humans from, from place to place or in more hazardous environments like yeah. offshore wind. Yes, and, and particularly for offshore wind, this is where we have robots that live that will live on the platform as what we term as residential robots. Because once these platforms are built, you probably will implement the robots as you build the platforms, in which case then you don't actually have to retransport them after the platform has been built. That would certainly re reduce your, your carbon footprint overall. 
I think this is a really good point because even if you look today at how offshore wind farms are serviced, you might say that the, the cost is bearable. In fact, like with these targets of 40 uh, gigawatts, all of these new offshore wind sites are going to be, most of them are going to be located even further ashore. So then you, you move up from CTVs, small day trips, to actually having to go on SOVs out there for several weeks. So it's a cost that gets even larger as you develop more and more offshore wind, which uh, just by the nature of availability will have to be further and further offshore as we develop new sites. Absolutely. And I suppose that that time sat on a, on a CTV transitioning to site, it's not productive time. And, you know, you're paying people for that time, but it's not adding value to the operations of the site. Whereas I guess that problem is is reduced when you start to look at kind of resident robotic systems. I think with resident robotic systems, it will be majorly reduced. But even as a stepping stone, if you can have robotic systems which supplement technicians as they're working, then you can have a case where you can do twice the amount of work in the weather windows that are are available to, to access the turbines. Uh, and thus reduce the uh, vessel costs, which are, of course, one of the main cost drivers. It's also worth kind of linking back to that very first question, the myth about is it going to take human jobs? I think there's going to be an issue when we scale up that there aren't enough people. The workforce isn't there. And you have this in the, the 70s and 80s with oil and gas, where you needed diving inspections or inspections using human divers there weren't enough trained divers and it's a hazardous environment. And so ROVs were implemented not to replace the divers, but to augment the divers, to supplement the divers. You essentially have an underwater inspection team that consists of humans for certain tasks because the robots can't do them and robots for the dull, the dirty, the dangerous tasks. And I think you'll find exactly the same when you've got a thousand wind turbines that need to be monitored. We won't have enough boats. We won't have enough people, won't have enough helicopters or people willing to dangle from helicopters or go diving or to look at it. You will still need those. You know, there are certain things, robots aren't the solution to everything. They're not gonna solve all of the problems. They can't do all of the tasks, but they can allow you to focus on the tasks that only a human can do. And it means that you can target the resources appropriately. So at the scale that we need to reach net zero, it has to be a combination of humans and robots. I think that's absolutely right, Simon, because, you know, in the UK alone, we're going from a position now where we have around about 10 gigawatts of offshore wind. In just under 10 years time, we've got a target of having 40 gigawatts, which is is a quadrupling. And that's just the UK. When you expand that out globally, we're looking at hundreds of gigawatts. And like you say, I, I don't think we're going to see or be able to bring through that amount of skilled resource to, to do all those tasks manually. It's a big challenge and one that robotics has got a, a really significant role to play. And, and touching on that point you made about the, the kind of parallels with oil and gas back in the 70s and 80s, I guess we, we really shouldn't be limiting ourselves to looking at robotic technologies that are being developed within the offshore wind sector. But actually, uh, there's, there's really exciting innovations coming through from, from other sectors. What other sectors should, should we be looking at for a really exciting technology to deploy within offshore wind? So I'm part of one of the companion hubs. So Theo's part of the Orca hub that's looking specifically at offshore. I'm part of the Rain hub, which is looking for nuclear, looking at nuclear decommissioning, new build life extension. And the technologies that are being developed there are very transferable to the offshore environment in the same way that technologies that are being developed 
through ORCA and other offshore uh, activities are also transferable into the nuclear sector. The fundamental robotic technologies, the locomotion, the sensing, the environmental interaction, they're application agnostic. If you put it in a, an industrial facility, they will look pretty similar, whether that's in a nuclear environment, an offshore environment, oil and gas, petroleum, whatever it is, the fundamentals are, are pretty much the same. And so there's a huge amount of knowledge that can be transferred from other sectors. I think the key opportunity is adoption. So there is no application area that has adopted inspection and maintenance robotic platforms en masse yet. Nobody has taken the leap. Offshore is leading that with drone inspections, but they're still manual inspections. And, you know, there is inspections in civil infrastructure and in nuclear as well. But this idea of the residential robotic fleets that we've touched on, no one has yet committed to that. And so there is that opportunity for an industry to take leadership, be that nuclear, be that offshore, be that logistics or transportation or civil infrastructure. That is what's going to, to propel things forward because that then provides the supply chain, which links the, the kind of low level university research through to that commercial viability. Absolutely. And, and Theo, I suppose Orca Hub, like the rain hub that Simon was talking about there, it doesn't just look at offshore wind, does it? It, it looks at all offshore sectors. Yes, uh, not only do we look at offshore, but also in the areas of transportation, transportation as in road logistics. We also look at some medical robots as well. It's not just offshore robotics that we look at, but, you know, Simon touched on a very important point about this human collaboration aspects, because at some point in time, people will ask, can I trust this system? And this is really important. And this is something that, of course, Orca Hub in together with Rain, you know, it's something that we are looking at is what is the trustworthiness of our system? Is it reliable? It might be reliable, but it not, might not be trustworthy. We've got to understand how humans and robots themselves, machines and machines work together in order to come up with the right mechanisms to be built in. And perhaps this will then help uptake. But it's true, industry is certainly looking towards removing the really mundane type of jobs where possible, because there's not efficient use of, of human resource. Certainly, robotics has a good role to play there. And that role will actually reduce a lot of the net zero aspects of it, or rather to achieve the net zero, because a lot of mundane jobs require a lot of mundane other things to go with it. So we've talked a bit about flying robots, swimming robots. Brody, you're developing a, a crawling robot. And I guess that's what people see on the outside is, is the way it moves or the way it interacts with a the structure. Theo, you mentioned trustworthiness, and I guess that's not a function of the hardware, that's a function of the software and the control system and things like that. And I suppose robotics aren't skin deep. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes underneath the exterior. Could you talk just a little bit about some of the things that people might not think about when they see a robot standing there or moving around or doing something? Yes, yeah, certainly. I guess those people who would be into robotics would probably understand Azimov's law. And one of the first laws is not, you know, do not harm the human, <laughs> in a sense. And, and how do we do this? Well, under the skin of a robot will be various sensors. And it's really trying to understand what these sensor technologies, which can be implemented, and what the kind of data that comes back that tells us about something about the environment. On our part, it's not just about the environment. We also have to understand what the robot is doing. So we've got to match the information that comes from the robot itself with the environment information. And from this, we can then build a kind of a ontology, you would say, or a taxonomy that would control how the robot sees the world, like how we might see it. 
And so in research side, we would say, yes, we might apply things like expert systems or knowledge-based systems, et cetera, et cetera. And this is actually what's under skin to help us reach that kind of trustworthiness. When we talk about trustworthiness, we are saying to somebody, this robot is doing something. The robot will tell you, hey, you know, I'm doing this. I'm fine at the present moment. I don't have any power issues or whatever. Uh, I'm going here. There are no other people around here. It's just me. Don't worry. It's just me. And now I'm doing this job. I know I can report to you as many times as you wish about what I'm doing. And this gives confidence to somebody who's operating a robot maybe 300 kilometers away because you can't physically see it. So the only thing that you can get back from it is what is this robot doing? How is it doing its work? And how is it reporting it back to me? So this is the trustworthy aspect that we need to start to build around. Hopefully we will reach that and not to find the distant future. That's what I say here. That's kind of part of this transition from a remote controlled robot through to a robot capable of making its own decisions, whether that's very much pre-programmed decisions that, you know, it flies this flight path around a blade to inspect it or very much on the fly decisions about, well, I've experienced this change, therefore I need to change how I'm going to do things. But being able to communicate that back to the operator is a really crucial part of that. So that's a really interesting point because robotics is one part of a wind farm system in in this particular industry that we're looking at here today and i suppose what we've talked about so far is how robotics will be used for tasks that enable humans to focus on tasks that that only humans can do but brody i guess how do you use insights from the wind farm so that they're obviously collecting data all the time on on the health of their assets how might you go about using that to inform when a robot should go and do a task. There are some tasks that humans can do, and there there are some tasks that perhaps you would not ask a a human to do. With an efficient robotic system, you can, in many ways, collect much more data than a human ever would, especially in the future with resident robotic systems, you could use uh, downtime, low wind speeds to go out and do proactive inspections, proactive like NDT work. You can do more investigations, which means that you can be ahead of the curve, so to speak, on your maintenance schedule. So I, I think robots are much better positioned to collect much more data than people ever could. And then, of course, on the back end, you can leverage advances and machine learning to then make better predictions about when maintenance should be carried out and the life expectancy of your assets. Simon, have you got anything to add on that interaction between data, digital health and and robotics, do you think? Well, I think there's an interesting view that we want to get to the stage where robots aren't special. It was interesting about the, the data analytics. So the data analytics, that, that's not robotics. That is artificial intelligence, machine learning. You know, it's data analysis. And that, if it's done on the scale that, that we might hope, where you have all of this sensor input and it, it's actually refined, will highlight where things need to be done. And it will say, this task needs to be done over here. This task needs to be done over here. How that task is done, whether it's a robot or a human, it shouldn't really matter. We kind of want to move away from robots being these kind of, oh my gosh, it's a robot doing a task. Actually, you want to go, it's a robot doing a task. It's like, I've got a screwdriver, a hammer and a robot. What do I use? Uh, it's the appropriate tool. And actually, it, it may sound a little controversial. You know, you've got a robot and a human. They're the same. 
they are a tool to get the job done remotely. They're in operations. And, and I thought Theo's discussion point was really interesting about having those conversations with the robot, with the Miriam project. It's replicating what you would have with an operator out there. You know, if you've got a trained technician, you would contact them and go, hi, how are you doing? Okay, um, this has been flagged. Can you go over there? Yes, I can, but I'm going to have to take pause along the way. You know, you want to have the, the robot and the human interchangeable for whatever tasks. It, it becomes a means of doing your maintenance or doing your repair task. That's the point at which I think we've got there where it stopped being shiny and special. It starts just becoming part of the furniture, part of your toolkit. It's more about the task, the objective than, than anything else. And I guess we see uh, goal-based mission planning and things like that is kind of the product of that, would you say? If your goal is to do a highly dexterous task, don't send the robot in. If your goal is to go to somewhere benign and gather a lot of data, don't send the human in. It's knowing what is your toolkit. And your toolkit contains a whole range of biological tools and technological tools. What is the most appropriate tool to complete your task? If that's a person, great. If that's a, a robot, fantastic. And I think... This kind of leads us nicely into our next conversation topic, which we've already touched on, and that's this collaboration between humans and robotics with, within the sector. And I think we're starting to dive into it a little bit there. To me, it feels like human jobs in, in offshore wind going forwards are going to become almost more specialist and more focused on these either dexterous tasks or tasks which require thought and, and the human brain, like Theo mentioned earlier. What's your take on, on this, Theo? It will definitely be a combination of both. I think one's got to realize that uh, when you have platforms offshore, just like with oil and gas platforms, there are a lot of what we term as confined spaces, and they're very dangerous. We have a lot of incidents where there's a depletion of oxygen in these sorts of environments. Really dangerous for humans, and this is where robotics really come in uh, handy. In terms of saying how we will work more closely with robotics? Well, actually, maybe we should think about it the other way around. What kind of skills do we need for our future workers to have in order to use robotics efficiently or effectively? And certainly upskilling is, is really important in this case here. You know, there are a lot of employees who already have a lot of knowledge, a lot of skills in area. Fair to say, sometimes the work is very repetitious, but that's all right. It's part of the job. The question here is, if we are going to use robotics to replace this aspect of this particular part of the job, what does robotics need? And then we can start to say, you know, okay, robotics needs this, but then the humans will also need something in order to help the robot work in this area. And there will be some areas where the robots, by the nature of them being able to do things that humans can't, right, like data collection and, you know, quick vision analysis and all this they will in the end augment what the human will do. So I would say that this is a kind of like a, a bi-directional communication or bi-directional working environment. It's slightly different from collaboration. It's taking knowledge across from your uh, synthetic world, which is like the robots and digital worlds, and how you can use your human cognition, your, your intuition, and build that together to create this kind of a symbiotic environment for which you can excel in, in what you need to do as effective as possible, what Simon said, the right tool for the right job is to help you get to that right tool very quickly. And I think as part of that as well, Theo, and I'll perhaps ask Brody to comment on this, in terms of what we can do to 
make robots work, as you say, do you think that the assets themselves, so the, the wind farms, the offshore substations, are going to change in terms of morphology in order to enable easier robotic interventions? Currently, they're all designed for human-based interventions. Do you think that's going to change as we look kind of 30, 50 years ahead, Brody? I can't imagine that it won't change once robots start becoming more prevalent. These turbines are not designed at all with robotics in mind. I, th- I think robots will have to lead the way with that. We'll have to show that there's a place for them. And then I think the big manufacturers will start to see the benefits of including making design decisions based around the O&M activities, which we imagine will move towards a robotic approach. Simon, do you want to come in on that? I think it's going to be critical, for, especially for the residential fleets. We're actually trying to solve a much harder problem at the moment of retrofitting robots into places they're not designed to go. Humans are highly dexterous and have had however many million years worth of evolution. And you've got decades of experience in using a door handle. Door handles are like kryptonite to robots, you know, meet a door handle. It's like Daleks and stairs in the 70s with Doctor Who. But if you change your door from being a door handle to being an automatic slide door, it becomes robot accessible. There might be small changes that could be made to the existing infrastructure because we're not going to replace the existing infrastructure and we still need to use robots. So it's that thing of what small changes can we make to the existing infrastructure? And it's almost viewing this as as making it accessible in the way that many workplaces have to be accessible to humans, say wheelchair users, does that same kind of mindset have to be adopted to robots? Do you make the assets accessible to robots? You then have the the future looking of, okay, what about the facilities, the assets that haven't been designed yet? The ones that are gonna come online in 20 years time. We need to be engaging with the, the designers at an early stage to say, right, don't put stairs in, okay? Put a ramp in makes our life significantly easier because you can have a wheeled robot that goes up rather than a highly complex quadruped that will do the job. But have you seen how many millions of pounds has been invested into getting it to go up that flight of stairs? Whereas a ramp, it just runs up. As we move towards this future vision where I guess we've got assets designed with robotics in mind, we've got humans being deployed, as it were, for tasks that are much more suited to humans. Do you think the nature of the human role in offshore wind is going to change? Do you think we're going to see more people kind of working onshore, providing the knowledge and the expertise that they've gathered to a kind of wider variety of wind farms? Theo, what are your thoughts on that? Maybe a 60-40 in in my view. Uh, Certainly there will be more people that will be based onshore, but there will always be more people developing, I guess you could say, the, the workflows to service these sorts of infrastructures. If you think about it, we can send a robot in to do some servicing, but a robot by itself really doesn't know what to service unless somebody says, yeah, you're going to have to service that. So you will still need the skill sets of these people. In their past job where the robot wasn't there, they were already doing this. So they will still retain their skills, but they will add on an additional skill of saying, right, I want to do this, but you know what? It's really far away. I think I'm going to send a robot there. So that skill becomes, how do I deploy this robot to do what was or what used to be a very manual job? So I would see that the the workforce would still be there, but I would say that, yes, there'll be a shift towards more the technology aspect of it. In my view, it's kind of like 60-40, maybe as the advances of uh, you know, technology become better and better, then maybe become 50-50, you know? but certainly I will never see 100% at the present moment. 
well, at least not for the next 20, 30 years. Brody, I guess, what do you see as being the UK's opportunity here in terms of robotics? I guess this is a, a relatively brand new sector that's developing and growing. Surely we've got a huge kind of prize as, as the UK to develop new technology in this space. Obviously, we have the largest amount of installed offshore wind in the world. So, so we have the, the playground, so to speak, to perform all of these repairs and maintenance activities. We're going to have the opportunity to see the first intervals of all the service lifetime, be it leading edge repairs or whatever. I think our unique opportunity is based in the fact that, that we have the, the wind turbines in place and we are located here so that we can get access to these uh, aging turbines and even decommissioning sites to test upon and to really trial these new fleet of uh, robotic devices because I think there's going to be a lot of validation which is needed before there will be a large amount of um, uptake from the industry. So I think that's where our advantage sits. Just that validation piece is something that we're acutely aware of at Sawari Catapult. And at the moment, we're investing £3 million in upgrading our facilities for testing robotics and autonomous systems. Theo, what's the importance of doing that testing work up front? Um, we've talked about improving trust and things, but how difficult is it to test a robotic system? Oh, quite difficult, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think often in our research institutions, we do not have that space, you know, uh, unlike Brody, I mean, we're pretty jealous of that in a sense. Instead, we have tiny little labs and we always have to scale down our systems in, in a sense. At the end of the day, we will need somehow to correlate what we do in our labs, all the kind of modeling that we have, the kind of even physical subsystems that we have to say, does our model and do our systems here, uh, are they extensible to the real world? Can they be actually realized? And this is the real tough part for us. So we come up with different metrics for evaluating the potential of these sorts of technologies. And the only way to actually know whether it will work or not is really to go out there and try it out on a real site. And I think we, we had that advantage through the Orca project, particularly at the Blythe, where we did some demonstrations there. All I can say is, unless we test it out at the real site, we really cannot validate our technology Yes, we can do to a certain extent in our labs and our scaled down experiments, but to really see the effect, we, we need to go to where the actual infrastructure asset really is. And Simon, do you see the, the kind of validation steps for a robotic system or the steps that we need to go through to test a system appropriately? Do you see that as being different to other forms of technology that we would be used to testing on a day-to-day -day basis? No, I think it all comes back to that question of trust in the technology. So if there's any new technology that you are going to adopt, you have to have confidence in it that it's actually going to do the job. And that confidence quite often comes from experience. We can test things in a lab, but everybody knows that you take it outside of the lab and things go wrong almost instantly. Even with the, the commercial systems, there is a huge amount of testing that goes on behind the scenes that you never see. They'll have their own dedicated test rigs and test environments. Robotics is that interesting one in that because it's not very mature, it's still spanning the technology readiness levels. There is still a huge amount of low TRL work that needs to be done at the university level, as well as that slightly more mature TRL stuff uh, that is being industry driven. And it's how do you combine those? And actually, how do we learn lessons and mistakes that have been made in the past? And I think where the Orca Hub, where the Rain Hub, 
have got real strength is that they've engaged with the end users from a very early stage to go, right, this is the university research. This is the lower TRL stuff. This is what the future is going to look like. But it's going to get stuck in a lab if we don't engage with you. Or if we don't test it and validate it in a real world environment, you're not going to be interested in it. Or you'll wait for five years until it gets picked up by someone else. And so having those real world test sites validate and generate confidence, even at the low TRL level stuff that's being done in the university labs, I think that's a game changer. That's something that is really different from, say, five years ago when we started out with the hubs. It's allowing us to identify challenges and identify them early. It's allowing end users to engage with the technology at a stage where they can influence it. So, you know, the old paradigm of university academics coming along going, here's the solution. What's your problem? Is gone. We're now much more open going, okay, what is your problem? We've got a variety of potential solutions. Let's tailor them to you. And I think that dynamic between academia and industries is changing. And that's facilitated by us being able to get into these facilities, show what we can do, giving confidence that we can deliver activities. And then it becomes cyclical. Once you've got a bit of confidence, you'll feed that back in, more challenges will come. And this has been shown great success in both RAIN and ORCA. Yeah, there's a really strong positive feedback loop going on there. And I guess just before we close for this afternoon, it would be terrific to hear about some of the really exciting projects that, that you guys are working on here and now that in a few years' time, hopefully we'll be seeing in wind farms off a coastline near you. Theo, to start with you, what's the number one most exciting project that you're working on at the moment? I will present it from the area that I work with, which is um, asset integrity management. So the O&M aspects. In this case here, we are really interested in the symbiotic relationships between the assets and the operators. And for us, it's about trying to develop this new um, symbiotic digital architecture, as we call it, because we're going to be digitalizing a lot of components and entities of the whole workflow of, of O&M for asset inspections. That's the exciting bit here. I think certainly over the last 10, 15 years, you know, people have been looking at very specific aspects of robotics for certain things, but they're very, very good. But somehow or other, it's missing this sort of relationship between the operator it's always very technological biased. It's somehow rather missed the operator. Our research here is trying to bring that back in, you know, really trying to say, as I explained before, you know, the need for better human robot collaboration. That's what we're trying to do with this symbiotic digital architecture. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Brody, what's Bladebug's biggest focus? What, what are you working on at the moment? Over the, the last few years, we've developed this highly dexterous hexapod robot to access all areas of the tower. And now with this uh, robotic platform uh, ready, now we're looking at useful tasks that we can actually perform out on the blades and in other areas of the tower. So just recently at Oryx Leavenmouse Demonstrator Tower, we performed the world's uh, first offshore autonomous lightning protection system check. And now we're looking at other activities, maintenance activities, which we can perform. So we're working with EchoBolt, who have a, a novel bolt tensioning measurement system. And we're looking at how to automate that process. And also one of our, uh, our big targets for the future is looking to tackle early stage blade repairs. So looking at uh, sanding, filling, fairing activities out on the blade, which would take away some of the more mundane repairs that rope access technicians currently have to do. And last but not least, Simon, what's keeping you up at night at the moment? 
with excitement. So, so one of the projects that I've been involved in for the last couple of years is the, the Memory Project, which is in collaboration with OREC and also with, with Bladebug as well. And, and that was looking at the multi-agent robotic system. So rather than a single robot going to do a task, can you have a team of robots that do something? So we were looking at an autonomous boat that could deliver a drone to a wind turbine and the drone could then carry one of the blade bug robots that's been developed, deploy it onto the wind turbine, let it do an, its inspection, then come back, pick it up, take it back to the boat and the boat goes back to shore all autonomously or control or automated. The human kind of defines the mission, then presses play and the, the system goes. So we had some really excellent demonstrations up at Blythe a couple of months ago where we were able to land some blade bug analogs on one of the, the wind turbine blades autonomously, both deploy it and uh, recover it. And, and that's the next step. We've got a lot of work done on individual robots doing a single mission, but that uh, idea of the residential fleet of robotic systems they're going to require multi-agent cooperation so this is the next step in that plan simon theo Brody, thank you very much for taking part in today's episode it's now time to de-energize until next month but in the meantime listeners can find more about ore catapult activities at ore.catapult.org.uk and don't forget to follow us on twitter and linkedin at ore catapult